Dr. David Leitner, thank you for being here today. I have a, you know, I did, as you mentioned, stalked you uh, for a little bit, quite some time. I have many questions to ask you and a lot of things um, really to dive into and talk about, you know, um, just off the top of my list, the top of my head, um, areas, you know, anytime you're speaking about leadership, um, I think it's something that's very difficult to talk about, although it has many, 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 many books, movies, examples um, to talk about when it comes to leadership. Um, but I'm going to, I think you you preach it, you talk about it from what I've seen in a unique way. So I'm going to try to unpackage that with you. Okay. Um, but I'll start with, you know, you walked in here with a book. Um, it seems like you're studying that book pretty uh, heavily mm-hmm. um, for just a, you know, a casual read, which uh, a book that you carry around with you. Uh, my books don't have, are not filled with stickers and notes, un- <laughs> unfortunately. Uh, so what are you reading right now? Um, right now, I'm actually reading a book by the Horowitzes on uh, leadership. It's it's part of what I research and what I, what I teach. Um, the, I mean, if you came to my library, you would see that most of my books, any of my research books, have thousands of little tabs in them. It's it's very important to me to not just read a book. Um, I think that when you're reading any book that's got meaning to you, it gives you a sense more of what that worth is when you can go back to that book and sort of open it to something and go, oh, wow, this was an important point for me to remember, or this was something that can help me further on in my future. And um so, like, I mean, all of my research books, anytime I've opened up a book when it's something that has to do with leadership, followership, strategy, tactics, um, the book isn't just about, like, one time reading that information. For me, it becomes a, a resource that I'm going to go back to 10, 20, 100 times. And it, the best way to do that is to perceive it as a friend. And so those tabs are sort of like, you know, when you, ha- when you have a good friend and you've got like those great memories of like, here's this and here's that. So those are sort of those like great memories of like, hey, this was an important thing. Come back and visit me sometime. And that's how, how, how do you choose your books? Um, so I would say there's, um, there's three major topics that we can talk about. It's how do I choose my research books? Um, my research books are based on uh, two things. One is obviously the topic, the general topic that it's in, but then it's the kind of depth that that person brings to the topic. There are some books when you read the reviews on them, it's very, very shallow, sort of like, here's a review of all the information. I've moved beyond that in my life. I'm at the point where I would rather deep dive into a topic and try and see how someone's bringing their own nuance to it. So when it comes to my research topics, it's more that. But then, I mean, when you get down to like everyday books, I, I'm a science fiction fantasy. Um, I love Terry Pratchett. I love sarcasm, and and so it's that's more like my field of like if I have to get away from my research, this yeah. is where I'm going to go. And do you have time to read and get away from your research? I try to. It's really important. I think that um, one of the things that I preach a lot of is um, uh, work life boundaries, not balance. I I, I somewhat detest the idea of of work-life balance because you shouldn't have to balance your life with anything, but you need clear boundaries between them. And so having a a fundamental sense of here are my work-life boundaries, there's how much time I'm going to put on my work and here's how much time I'm going to put on in my life towards things beyond my work is really, really important. And um, 
one of the things that I enjoy doing in my life is reading books. So I have to make that differentiation of right now it's it's work work and now I have to take notes and I have to but now it's just the fun of reading a book that is an old friend that doesn't have any tabs in it. But if you were to see the book, it's like super creased on the on the binding and the you know the all the pages are starting to wear thin because they've been read so many times. Um so I mean the yeah I do try and make room for that kind of stuff. I don't watch a lot of TV. Um, I'm not one of those people who like Netflix or Netflix and chills or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> it's not my thing. Um, I don't watch lots of movies. I would much rather use my imagination and enjoy the written word. So it's just what I do. Do you have a favorite book? No, I don't have a favorite book. Um, do you have a favorite uh, book that's um, in the realm of your research that has really impacted you or changed your your you know way of thinking in it in in a drastic way that's memorable? So it's really interesting when I um when I when I first started my research I wasn't actually looking into followership at all. I um I was in politics. I was studying international relations. That was the field that I I got my PhD in. Um and I was actually looking at weapons of mass destruction proliferation. Fun. Uh, yeah, very much. And I was specifically looking at how western states were responding to WMD tr- proliferation by non-state actors, by terrorist organizations. Um, and then I came across this book by Robert Kelly on followership. And I was reading it and I was like, I could totally apply this to states. Like I could take the whole Western world and start looking at how they acted as followers in response to United States leadership. Instead of saying, oh, the United States leader, it was like, hey, let's let's figure out if the United States was really leading and what kind of leadership they were able to engage and what kind of followers they had. So Robert Kelly's work on on followership was sort of my first dive into it. So I don't know if it's my favorite, but it's definitely the thing that opened my eyes to the idea that followership existed as an as a concept. And from there it was like let's deep dive into this topic. So um there's Barbara Kellerman and and there's Ira Ira Shalaf who who uh who uh Shalaf who uh who wrote about courageous followership. Um, those are the Horowitzes who write about leadership and followership. There's, there's, it's become more of a field and it's still a very small field. Um, and is that what motivates you to keep maybe researching and studying it because it's, um, underdeveloped? I think that's part of it. I think also from my experience working with friends who, who are in high tech, um, for them, the idea of leadership was like, everyone's, you know, you gotta be a leader, you gotta be a leader, you gotta be a leader. And I was like, well, wait a second you guys aren't thinking about what it means to be good followers. You guys aren't thinking about this. And so people would come to me with their problems or issues they were having on their teams or um, some strategic issue they were having. And when we delved into it, very often part of the fundamental issue was poor followership. The the people who were supposed to be doing the work were more argumentative. They weren't actually, you know, um, you know, disagreeing and committing. They They weren't understanding that what they were presenting as was adversarial followership. And it meant that the teams weren't working smoothly together. Um, so, so let's break that down. What is what is the concept of uh, followership? Well, let's start by defining leadership then, because okay. you know, like if we're going to do that, let's start by leadership. And this is sorry to, um, this is what I meant by like one of my first statements on the podcast. Now was that I think you present leadership mm. in a unique way. Um, reading about leadership through followership, mm. I think, is very, very interesting. So please, um, let's start with leadership. Okay, so leadership is a process, first of all. It's a process by which one unit takes other units, brings them together, 
towards a specific vision, purpose, goal, or objective. And it does so by engaging very specific styles and manners and skills while understanding the level of the development of the follower. So think about that for a second. You need followers to be a leader. You can't be a leader without them. It's, it's by definition, like it's part of the definitional process of fo- leadership. You need followers. Well, if you need followers, then the followers are what make you a leader. And at that point you go, well, then that's a choice. Followership, just like leadership, is a choice. You choose who you follow and you choose how you follow. If you choose how you follow, then the way you follow matters. It impacts the capacity of leadership to be effective. It impacts the ability of leaders to get things done. It impacts their ability to say, hey, here's purpose. Here's vision. Let's move forward. And that, I think, is fundamentally forgotten by most people who consider or talk about leadership. Well, we we as a society are preached leadership that everyone you know uh, everyone wants to be a leader. Everyone wants to be the the man or woman you know coming up with the, the best idea, influencing people, and mm. you know um, having followers. Mm. Um, it's literally you know ingrained into our culture now. You know, if you look at social media, we're judged by the number of followers that exactly. our profile has. Exactly. Um, but thinking about being a positive follower how do you or adversarial follower is that the split positive versus no no so i would not split it in fact i would say there's a lot of different ways you can you can look at followership um kelly for instance robert kelly who we spoke about at the beginning um he gives us five major forms of followership he gives us two variables to look at um how much we bring independent thinking and how much uh how proactive we are in our own our own things and then he goes okay well based on those two variables you've got um your adversary adversarial follower um you're um this is the person who he's still part of the team you know whatever but he's devil's advocating all the time he's got his own way he believes that the way we're doing it is wrong and he's vocal about it right then you got your sheep person and that person is is has a lot of independent thinking but is not proactive they're not doing action they're just simply talking out then the sheep who they're not proactive and they, they they don't think for themselves you got to prod them to get everything done then you move into, well, the proactive people, you've got yes men. They're the people you can tell them what to do and they'll yes, 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 and they'll do. And then you've got the people who are proactive and they're independent thinking. Well, those are exemplary followers, according to Kelly. And then you've got your pragmatist. And that's the person who doesn't sort of fit one of these molds on a, on a, on the average, on the norm, but like sort of always is moving around all the time. Um, and most people go like, well, doesn't everybody move around all the time? And the answer is no. Actually, over time, when you look at a leadership process or a followership process, people tend to to hold kind of their own, this is what the kind of person follower I've chosen to be with this leader on this topic. Um, but that's only one of them. Um, Barbara Kellerman brings a whole different variable. She says the only level is the level of engagement. When you talk about level of engagement, she goes, you know, you, you've got your... your um, I remember the bottom one that she has there, but it's like the the lone the lone you know the lone wolf lone soldier does his own thing. Then you've got your bystander. Then you've got your uh, participant. Then your activist, and then your diehard. And you go well. The, that variable is just a little bit different because it's really about how en- it's just about how engaged is a person. You can use them together. What's really interesting, you can use these different ideas together, and you go well. You can have an activist. Who, or you can have like a, an exemplary activist. Right, someone who's independently thinking and participatory, and 
they are also, you know, activists. They are out there trying to get other people involved in the process. They're not willing to die for the process. They're not diehard. Um, Should, is the ideal to be a diehard? No, absolutely not. So what Um, is the ideal? I think that, I think that um, running between participant and activist is, is probably the ideal in terms of level of engagement that we're looking for from people on, on the whole. I think it's what we want from our kids. If you think about it for a minute, um, we want them to be participatory. We want them to be activists and like, oh, I see a problem. Let me help resolve it. We want them to be um, exemplary followers. We prefer them to be exemplary followers. But at the same time, they're very often we'll, we'll even push them down and be like, no, I really just want you to be a yes man. Do what I say. And that's it. I don't want you to present independent thinking. Um, and I think it's actually one of the fears of a lot of parents is when their when their kids starts to think for themselves and start presenting their own their own ideas and go well what about this what about that and it's it's very interesting because like it's this is something that applies from the family to like business to media to to like international relations this idea of leaders and followers we apply it everywhere we just don't see it so but ev- but everyone yeah you don't see it but everyone feels it no because everyone's yeah. in a team's to some degree, family, yeah. work, sports, whatever you do, yeah. um, you are in a team. And I think the word followership is a bit scary maybe for people to uh, dedicate time to thinking about because there's a lot of negative connotation to it when people, you know, people are afraid to be just, just followers, afraid to be looked at as sheepish. Mm-hmm. Um, is that is that ego? I think, I mean, part of it's hubris. Yeah, absolutely. There's there's an aspect of ego and hubris to it. Um, I think part of it's society and culture, like you said before. We've, we've for a, you know, for a very long time now, spoken about being the leader and, and you know, you want your kids to be leaders and, and people need to take on leadership roles. And, and we've kind of forgotten that really you need to have and be a follower to be a good leader. Most organizations, think about any organization that's got more than 10 people in it. In fact, five people. How many followers are there and how many leaders are there in that organization? Far more followers. Far more followers in any organization you're talking about. But most organizations nowadays focus on leadership. But the followers are the ones who execute. They're the ones who get things done. They're the ones who do all the work. So, so is that what you teach? So, is- I mean thinking about followership in a in an objective way that makes sense to function so there's three things that i do with followership when it comes to an organization um the organizations that i've worked with when i've gone in i've said hey let's try and focus a little bit on followership it's more about making the leadership aware of how important followership is because it's something that most leadership experts and people who come in and give sessions on leadership don't address um, and how important it is to be able to analyze the types of followers you have. So that's one thing I do. Another thing that I will do with people is um, more on the intimate level of like, hey, let's do teamwork on followership. What kind of followers are people presenting at here on your team? And that's about people actually working with each other and saying, hey, you know, I know you think you're presenting this way, but you're really presenting like this. Let's talk about how we change that. And then there's also that one-on-one work that I do where, you know, people come to me and are like, hey, I want to be a leader. I'm like, great, how are you presenting your followership? And that's a real discussion because people who are good 
um, at their job doesn't mean that they're going to be good leaders. But people who are good followers, like exemplary followers, tend to eventually make really good leaders. Um, people who are activists and really good at their job and are, you know, exemplary followers tend to make phenomenal leaders if they're courageous. That's a really big part of it is, is courageous followership. It's that ability to speak truth to power. Because if you're afraid to do that, if you're worried about it, if you don't have the internal sense of self to be able to come up and say, hey, this isn't a moral issue. This isn't a values issue. This is this is just, I think that there's a better way to do this issue. And I'm going to find the right way to do that. I'm going to the right way to talk about it to power. Then you can demonstrate so, so how do how do leaders in organizations uh, find ways to incentivize incentivize followers to to voice their opinions to take those risks and be courageous? I think that there's two things that leaders really do need to learn about. Um, one is uh, radical candor, um, and the other one is radical listening. Radical candor is, um, and I don't remember her name. Um, she wrote the book uh, called Radical Candor. Um, but her whole premise is that when people need to give feedback, when people need to hear truth, first and foremost, you have to be able to speak truth. You have to be able to say, here's what's really going on and be open and honest about it. But there's a second part to that. It's how well is what you're saying going to be received by the person who's hearing it? Not how well do you think you said it, but how well is the other person able to receive that information? What tone do you have to use? What, And I think that when you say, hey, how does leadership need to understand this? A big part of that is an understanding that when they talk, their followers are going to hear it differently than they think they're saying it and vice versa. Their followers need to be taught how the leader best hears things. And most leaders don't give don't give a manual of like, here's here's how I work. Here's the best way to talk to me. Here's the best times to talk to me, you know? You know, if you're the kind of person who uh, who needs your coffee in the morning before people start bringing you their problems and they don't know that about you, that can be a problem. Um, and it sounds small in minutiae, in minutia, but in the reality, that's a very big deal. Um, or if you're the kind of person who right after lunch can't be spoken to for about a half hour because you need to digest your food before you start dealing with stuff and your people don't know that, you're not en you're not enabling followership. You're making it hard for them. Um, and those are super small examples, but it goes into the depth of it, where if you're the kind of person who always wants to know what's going on and your people feel like you're micromanaging, and that's a fine balance. Like, yes, leaders need to know what's going on, but do they need to know everything that's going on all the time? Or do they need to know just enough to be able to do their part of the, the job? Um, and I think that the other part of this, like I said, is is the radical listening. Radical listening is about functionally not trying to respond. It's about listening to understand meaning behind what's being said. And that is super duper hard to do. Um, because most people, when they listen, they're listening in order to respond, not to learn. And if we want to learn, we have to put ourselves or people get triggered early by certain words. Right, which is also part of it, though. If you think about it, if you're letting yourself get triggered, you're not putting yourself aside to be an active listener. 
you're not engaging radical listening. Radical listening means even if I'm triggered, I'm going to put myself aside for a minute and go on assumption, which I know if I'm allowed to use bad language here, makes an ass of you and me. I've heard that. But go on assumption that the person who's talking to me is not speaking in order to hurt me. They are not here to, to bring me down. They are not engaging their power in order to make me feel bad. They are engaging their power in order to help us reach mutual purpose and, and, and get a vision and hit our objectives and meet our goals. So have you seen um, results, positive change results in a, an organization, both from the leadership and the followership side, just being exposed to the idea of followership and a spectrum of followership? Because I think you're actually, I think your message, what it does, um, I think it empowers the followers is that the followers followers do have a role in the success of whatever the the organization with the leader is trying to achieve and you're maybe as a follower you're not necessarily a sheep and there's a specific role that you can take upon yourself a courageous role that will help you will help the leader and will help the organization as a whole 100 um i think that um First of all, yes, I have seen positive change in organizations. Um, friends of mine who have come to me with their own personal, hey, I've had issues, have come back with, oh, my God, that was amazing. I don't get that kind of feedback so much when I go to an organization. Organizations are more like, thank you very much for coming. This was great. And then afterwards, I'll get an email like, hey, you know, this has been really nice and we've seen some positive change. But it's not it's not the same as when, you know, a friend comes up to you and goes, yeah. Oh my God, that was awesome because you changed the tra trajectory of what was a disaster in the making into a huge success simply by having us engage differently with what was going on in our relationship between us and our, our leader or between me and my followers. Does that sometimes bring a difficult conversation to have with a friend, maybe saying that, hey, you're not a leader right now? And maybe you need to reevaluate your position and you can be a very courageous, inspiring follower so, at this point in time. <laughs> That's an interesting question. Um, so I, I want to break it down into two. There's, okay, there are people who hold leadership positions and there are friends of mine who have held leadership positions who I have called out and said, you're not a leader, you're a manager. And they will all huff and puff at me. What do you mean? I'm not a leader. Of course I'm a leader. I'm, a, I'm like, no. Everything you do, everything you talk about, how you discuss your role, how you discuss what you're doing is management. It's about resources and, and key performance indicators and, and, and making sure people hit their metrics and making sure things get done. That's not leadership. That's, that's management. Leadership is about the relationship you have with these people, how you bring your styles to them and how you understand their developmental level and how it helps you reach the goals that you've set. It's not the same thing. It's about the process you're just you're working on. And all of a sudden you see them go, oh. And then it becomes a conversation. But at first, a lot of people, a lot of my friends who I've done that to, and I haven't done that to so many of my friends, but I've done that to enough of them where you sort of see the 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 balloon pop and they realize that it was about their ego for a minute or two because they'd gotten a position or whatever. And then they started really rethinking what leadership meant for them. Um, I have a friend who's now trying to move he, from a position of being a worker bee into a position of leadership. And he, um, 
he was like, I'm really worried because I've never held leadership before and, and everything. And I was like, but if you look at your life, you've done lots of leadership stuff. He's a, he's a, a, a Dungeons and Dragons, you know, a dungeon master. He's been doing that for years and years and years and years and years. And I was like, you realize that that role fundamentally is a leadership position. You have to deal with all these different people who all have their own wants, their own needs, and their own ideas about what it means to play the game. And all are going to, you know, want to try and push back when you make a decision about how we're going to do this. And you have to functionally deal with that. He was like, oh. Excuse me if I'm uh, belittling the position of a um, Dungeons and Dragons um, um, master, you said? It's okay, yeah. It's what, what does that entail? Okay. You know, Dungeons and Dragons to me just takes me back to seeing my brother play when I was in elementary school. <laughs> Um, and I remember him going to some sort of a convention where he dressed up. That's my that's, that's my understanding of Dungeons and Dragons. I, I think I watched one of the movies they made as oh, well, I, uh, uh, but I don't think it was very good. No, that's um, fair. That's fair. But so, is it what does he oversee a lot of people? So, depending on the game, okay. So let's understand just a quick deep dive into Dungeons and Dragons. Um, Dungeons and Dragons is a role playing game. Um, so no, you don't have to get dressed up to play it. You can literally just come as you are. Um, but it's people sitting around a table um, and they create personas and then they bring these personas into a fantasy world or a developed uh, world that the dungeon master has established for them. And they go on all kinds of missions or they all go on all kinds of, of um, I don't even know what the right word is. They just they they go through life this this al- alternative reality um, that the with, du- without the machines without anything like it's just it's just imagination and when you know some people will play with with some little figurines and stuff on the table to be able to say I'm moving my person from here to here so that everybody can visualize it really well, but the dungeon master's role is to keep the story moving. The dungeon's master role is to make sure that that everybody's following the rules and everyone's playing the, their role within this game well. Um, it's about making sure that certain certain key you know key objectives are hit along the way in the storyline. It's about um, making sure everyone knows you know how other people are feeling about how play is going, and when play is going badly how to resolve conflict within play between players because one player wants to do this and another player wants to do that or one player you know doesn't think that this is being done fairly this game is being played fairly and the dungeon master has to he has to mediate those role those different conflicts and it do you play I I do. <laughs> I'm guilty of playing. Um, how, how long? Have you, how many years have you been playing? So um, I played uh, when I was younger for about. Mm, 12 years, and then I took a break. And then about five years ago, I started playing again. How many people play worldwide? Oh, lots. It's a huge game. It's a huge game. And um, Corona, like, bumped it up a whole bunch because suddenly people were, and people were playing online. It was a way for people to connect. Um, I actually know a few games that started, specifically once Corona had started, people were like, hey, I'm thinking about playing this. Would you want to join? And people did. Um, because it got people out of the reality of Corona as well, which is nice. You could suddenly go on an adventure and you'd hear about, you know, you're climbing up a stormy icy peak and all of a sudden a werewolf shows up at the, out of nowhere. What do you do? And all of a sudden you have to live that life and it's kind of cool. So you're living this, um, you know, um, 
alternate alternate reality mm. um, really that we hear a lot about now with AI and how you know augmented reality and all these different things mm. all this new technology that is going to transport us to another dimension where we're able to um, live a whatever life we want to live whatever mission we want to tackle um, but here you have people that do it all along without technology just with your brain yeah just imagination and really if you think about it the imagination is is endless like you can do you can play games that are science fiction games there are science fiction role playing games there's fantasy mm. games there's so many do you th- and do you think it helps you besides the entertainment and joy uh, joy that comes with playing mm. um do you think it helps you in other aspects of your life in my life personally Oh, um just having this um you know using your brain for this um fiction fictional reality. Oh, 100%. I think that when I think that as we go get older, we we tend to lose our imagination in a lot of ways unless unless you're specifically in a field which engages imagination on a regular basis, creativity on a regular basis. A lot of people tend to like become less imaginative and 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 less creative as we get older unless you specifically work those muscles. And those are I mean, I'm not a, a neuroscientist, but I know a, a little bit about neuroplasticity. And if you don't use the neural pathways, they start to deteriorate, right? And so you become less creative. You become less engaged, less able to engage those neural pathways. Um, and I think Dungeons & Dragons is just one of many, many ways that people can engage their creativity um, and their imagination. And I think that... Um, I think that if we think about what it means to be creative, it starts with the the idea. It starts with something that struck your brain and it started some sparks going off. And all of a sudden you go, wow, I can start doing this and I can start doing that. And, and no one can explain where these ideas come from, right? So if we look at, okay, so I, I'm a firm believer that the core of power is ideas. Ideas are what, get power any power process started power processes go through like you get hit by an idea and all of a sudden you start to strategize and then what can i bring to the table and what effects do i want to have and then how can i maneuver and then start taking action you can sort of sort of maybe garner where some ideas come from like for instance if you go back in your own history and look at how your parents influenced you and how your family influenced you and how your society influenced you. And things like that. Some of your ideas, you can sort of be like, oh, that came from my parents. That I, that concept came from here. But when it comes to a new idea, more often than not, you have no idea where it came from. No clue. Um, Terry Pratchett has a really great uh, description of this. He's talking about one of the, one of the characters in his book has, the, has this unfortunate... Um, situation where he seems to be a receptacle for the you know the sparks of uh, of ideas and they just hit his brain in the middle of the night and he'll wake up and his sheets are covered in in drawings of of different machines and things like that and you go well yeah it's it's sort of like you're daydreaming and all of a sudden you've got a great idea you're you're in the middle of the night you wake up and suddenly you realize you need a pen and paper next to you because let me write that down before i forget it um and really the the worst thing to have happen i think is when you have a great idea and it escapes you. You have this wonderful idea, and you didn't get have enough time or enough capacity to, to get it written down or get it down somewhere where you can revisit it and even make it, you know, bolster it and make it, and it's gone. And good luck trying to get it back. Like, it doesn't happen. So, 
For those only listening to the podcast and who are not uh, seeing us on the video, um, if you are, head to YouTube, you'll see us on the video um, <laughs> or the website. Um, you're sitting here in a wheelchair. Correct. And again, I don't mean that in a way to define what you are, no. uh, but you are sitting here in a wheelchair and you do have a um, pretty intense, interesting story behind it, um, how you got to where you are today. Yeah. Um, so can we um, unravel that? Where did everything start um, and where you are today with your situation? Um, and because, I, I, again, I based on my reading about you, mm-hmm. um, it started with, a, with an ankle in- injury. injury. Yeah. Um, so do, do, do you mind taking us from that ankle injury all the way um, to today? And again, I know it's a lot. We can stop. We can take turns uh, <laughs> no as the story progresses. Sure. Um, but it's a really interesting one. And we're, we're talking about uh, CRPS, mm-hmm. um, which is, I wrote it down so I don't mispronounce it anyway, complex regional pain syndrome. Um, how, how common is CRPS? Uh, CRPS is about... Um, well, it's about one to one hundred and fifty to two hundred thousand people. Um, in when you're talking about the average statistic, um, I don't fall within that statistic, which I can explain in a little bit why. But it's basically because it spread from one limb to another limb in me, and that makes me um, unique <laughs> amongst people who have what I've got. Um, but you asked how it started, so I'm gonna. I'm going to start from the beginning and we can work our way from there. Yeah. Okay. So, so, I, so I know that you're a, you're a soldier in the military. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, so take, take it from there. Okay. Um, so I, uh, I joined the, the Israeli Defense Forces in uh, 2000. Um, and I was 23 years old. So I was a little bit older than the average soldier. Um, I'd actually moved to Israel on my own um, when I was 20 years old. And I knew that I needed to sort of figure myself out, but I knew I wanted to go into the army. Um, I ended up in uh, Maglan, which is one of the commando units of the IDF. Um, I did basic training, did jump school, and then um, we have um, advanced training, and then you move into the unit and start doing specializations. Um, when I was in advanced training, one of the things that we we do there is um, we practice removing a wounded a wounded uh, comrade from the from the from the field of battle. Uh, it's called um, I, don't, I don't know what it's called in English. I, I'm sure there's a word for it, but um, in in Hebrew it's called the chad al It's when you lift someone up onto your shoulders, and literally you're carrying him and and all of his weight, and you got to just book it. Move it I think everyone has seen this image, uh, maybe uh, some uh, photograph or movie with a soldier. You've seen it somewhere yeah. where someone yeah. comes up, you you know, one arm under the under the legs, one arm grabs the grabs the body, pulls it up on your shoulders, roll and start moving. Um, so I started, I, I was in the middle of an exercise and, um, my commander was like, David, the, the heavy gunner, heavy machine gunner has, has, has fallen down wounded, go get him. And I, of course, being a diehard to put it back into the field of followership, I was very much a diehard. Like I was prepared to die giving, doing what I was doing. Okay. Run, 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 grab him, pick him up, start to move. And I put my foot on a rock or something. I'm not even sure what. Cause I'd, and it all of a sudden, I was just like, like, clack. And my ankle, like, it feels like a burst of, like, pain in my ankle. My leg crumpled underneath me. I dropped him on his head. I got yelled at. I found out later that he was cursing me out. I didn't even know the words in Hebrew that he was saying. Apparently, like, totally cursing me out. 
Um, and my commanders were yelling at me, they're shooting at you, they're shooting at you, get him, get him, get him. So I, being a diehard, didn't go, wait, I'm hurt. I, I picked him up and I got to the safe wall, I put him down. They checked my leg and they were like, oh, it's just a sprain, walk on it, you'll be fine. Um, I didn't see a doctor for like five or six days. Uh, finally saw a doctor and he was like, oh, it's... But it must have, I'm assuming it's, did it swell up the next it day? It was swollen. It was swollen. And they were just saying, you know, it's just a sprain. Just walk on it. It'll be fine. Um, I think part of that was my own my own motivation of I don't want to give up. I'm not going to let anything stop me, which is part of the nature of Die Hard. Like Die Hards really are, like there's a name, reason why their name is Die Hard. Um, and you're incentivized by the system to keep pushing and not quitting and 100%, keep going. Especially, yeah, yeah there's, there was a uh, saying that got thrown at me uh, a lot. Um, it, um, I can't means I don't want to in, in, in Hebrew. It was, yeah. uh, it was I, you know, it's not I can't, it's I don't want to. Yeah. Um, well, that means if you want it, you can do it. Um, and I wanted it. I, I wanted to be a commando. I wanted to be an officer. Like... Even today, um, I give I give talks in the army um, where I tell my story, and then as part of that, I include followership and leadership and things like that. Um, I think every single talk I've ever given, at some point, I've said something on the nature of, "If somebody were to tell me today, hey David, we want you to come back to Miluim to to reserve duty, I would do it at the drop of a hat, and I would do it even more so if somebody were to say to me, hey David, we want to send you to officers' school." Uh, my family and I have already come to an agreement on this one. If anyone were to ever say that to me, everybody knows I'm gone. Like, I'm going to do this thing. It's it's something which is so much a, a missing thing in my life. Um, so anyway, I was very much that kind of diehard. And I, I mean, even today, I guess you could say, I sort of have that diehard mentality about about that service and about serving, serving my people. Um, Anyway, the story goes as follows. So uh, you saw you saw the doctor five days. Saw later. Saw the doctor five days later, um, and he's like, "Oh yeah, it's just a sprain. Relax, relax for a week, and you'll be fine." Now, relaxing for a week just meant not going out into the field. It still meant I was doing guard duty, and it meant that I was on my foot all the time, and it meant I was walking. It wasn't like sit down, put your foot up, ice it, rice it, do whatever. No, it was really like actively moving. Um, ended up doing several route marches that were quite long, seventy kilometers long route marches yeah was that 40 miles yeah, for, like, for the it, americans yeah, yeah it's like 40 miles it's a, it's a long way yeah. it's a long walk and it was in the middle of winter which means mud and each foot weighs like 220 kilos like 10 pounds because of of just the amount of mud that was stuck to my feet um my leg was really hurting i had these like burning pain that would start my ankle and would shoot up to my knee and shoot up to my knee um on one side only only on yeah. my right only on my right leg i um I got to the unit. We and we 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 finished advanced training. I moved into specializations. They sent me to sniper school, um, and somewhere in the middle there, it became really clear that my leg was really messed up. I couldn't walk on it right, and I, when I was running, instead of running, I would take two hops on my left leg, put my right foot on the ground, and sort of like just barely touch it just to get a little bit of, 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 of movement and then two more jumps on my left leg. Have you hurt your ankle before that moment in your life up until that point? Um, I'd had like... like did, did you know the feeling of an ankle, a normal ankle I'd sprain? I'd had a normal ankle sprain, but it was it had never been anything like that. It was, this was something completely... It felt extreme to you. Yeah, yeah. It was extremely different. And, and I mean, I'd, at some point there were, I mean, when I was like 12... 
or 13, um, on my, actually on my left leg. I had sprained my left ankle, falling. I fell into the pool. I put my foot on the side of the pool wrong, and I twisted it. And they thought it was broken or whatever, and it wasn't. And they checked it, and they were like, it's fine. And within two weeks, I, I was back on my feet and running, and I was fine. Um, and so, I mean, I knew what an ankle sprain felt like. And I think had I been more, more, I want to, I want to say more mature, but I don't know if that's really the right way. I think if I'd been less of a diehard, and I also think if I'd had family here uh, to say, hey, David. Take a look at this. Let's take a look at this. Someone needs to. We uh, need to fix this. Um, I think the fact that I was a lone soldier and I didn't have family here who, who had that sense of personal responsibility for me made it even easier for me to be. To be made it easier for me to push myself without without the checks and balances that would normally come into play. So you're at this stage where evidently you can't even put run properly properly on right. your on your foot. So I had seen three doctors. They were like, "You need surgery. You need surgery." The first doctor was like, "I'm going to put three holes in your legs, and you're going to be off your feet for six months." But what did they uh, find? Like- torn two, I had torn two ligaments. Completely torn two ligaments in my right ankle. Completely torn. They were they were ripped. Um, and uh, first guy was like, I'm going to put like three holes in your bones and we're going to strap it up. And then I was like, can I have a second opinion? And he was, the second opinion was like, I'm going to put six holes in your bones and metal and it'll be there forever. And I was like, mm, can I please have a third opinion? Third opinion, guy goes, I don't need to put holes in your bones. I'm going to take what's left. We're going to clean it off. I'm going to stretch it a little bit and wrap it around the muscle. You'll be up and running in six months. And he literally looked me in the eye and he went, you're going to run like a panther. And I was like, I'll be able to go to officer school. He said, Oh yeah, I was like, oh, yes, and I was I was sold, um, and then I was like, tomorrow. I literally asked him if we could do it the next day, and he looked at me and went, mm, "I'm leaving for the states for four months to do, I don't remember what he was doing, some kind of specialization or something, and he was going to be back." And I was like, "So the moment you get back, he's like, well, technically there are people who are worse off than you, and they're already online, so you're going to have to wait." I was like, "How long? About six months." Well, I went back to my unit, and being back in my unit. I was, you know, it meant I was on my legs and I was, I was moving and I was, I was working and I was working and I was working. Um, about three weeks before the surgery, um, the doctor of the unit saw me running and he was like, David, stop. And I didn't want to because I was in the middle of like, I had some serious work to do. And he was like, no, stop, put everything down. You're going home. I was. Uh, I don't want to go home. Going home to me meant going to my my room on a kibbutz in the southern in southern Israel, alone. Without, with I mean, I had an adopted family and they're wonderful people and I love them dearly and I'm still in touch with them and and they're great. But I didn't have family, right? So it was going, and, it's, and it's not what you were there to accomplish. And it wasn't what I was there for. I was there to work. I was prepared to sacrifice quite literally, you know, everything for the Jewish people. Like, that's where I was at. Um, so I, I really wasn't prepared to stop. And he he had to forcibly, like, tell me, you're going home. Um, I mean, in retrospect, there's a good reason for that. You know, three weeks before surgery and my leg was swollen from all the work I was doing on it, it probably needed those three weeks of not doing quite as much. So at this point, you're already three weeks before surgery. So for it's been already, those four months are almost yeah. up. Yeah. You've been all that time, you've been operating in your unit. In I was a, a sniper specialist. So I was I was working. Um, either I was training or I was helping people or I was working. Like one of those three. Um, 
And I was on my legs all the time. And I was running everywhere. Um, and it got to the point where I really, I could barely stand. And I didn't show anyone. When I was like, the moment I was on my, my you know, my go-off base uniform, it was, I was not going to show anybody that I was hurting. And I was in so much pain even at that point. Um, and then they did the surgery. And the doctor seeing me go into the, into the operating room was like, what's going on? Why are you limping so badly? I'm like, my leg really, really hurts. He's like, uh, well, we'll fix that and it'll be fine. Middle of the surgery, I'm awake. Uh, because they just they numbed the area and gave me like a a little bit of something to like you know put me on a cloud nine but I was awake middle of the surgery I felt this sharp sharp pain in my ankle and I was just like <gasps> and he's like what you can feel that and I was like yes I can feel that and it was it took him like five extra shots in the area to numb it enough for them to continue the surgery um, I was in a cast for three months. You're describing everyone's uh, nightmare. Yeah, I'm so sorry. Surgery. I'm so sorry. No, no, it, I mean, it's, it's good. It's good stuff to know about. So you're so you're awake during the surgery, mm-hmm. um, and the surgery is is it's progressing. It started. It's progressing. Yeah, I can, I can feel them like pulling on my leg and moving stuff around and stuff. And at some point, I felt him touch something. It was some kind of nerve. It's, I mean, like if we're talking, it's probably touching a nerve of some kind. And I felt it, and it was really, really intense pain. And he was shocked that I was able to feel it at all. And uh, it took them five extra shots. They literally gave me five extra shots in order to numb the area enough for them to continue with the surgery. I get out of the surgery with a cast from my toes up to my ankle. And my leg doesn't feel very good in there, but it's, it's after surgery. Like, okay, you know, you've just been, it's, you've basically been beaten with a baseball bat as they move everything around and pull everything. I have to be in... But from the perspective of the doctor, was it a successful procedure? As far as he was concerned, it was a very successful procedure. He said, he literally said to me as I was walking out, as I was going out of the surgery, again, he was like, six months from now, you're going to be running. And I was, I was on cloud nine at that point, like both, both on cloud nine in terms of, I was still a little bit uh, woozy, but also on cloud nine in the sense of like, I was going to get back to doing what I wanted to be doing. Um... Got back to the kibbutz and it became very clear very quickly that I couldn't take care of myself. Um, and they moved me into an old age home on the kibbutz so that there'd be people to take care of me. Um, I stayed there for three months until they took the cast off. In the middle, they had to take the cast off because my foot was so swollen. Um, my toes were purple and it was very painful. And the doctor looked at it and he's like, oh, it's fine. But as they're putting the cast, taking the cast off and putting the cast on, there was this, excuse me, there was this really intense burning pain. And they were like, Oh, no, it's normal. Everything's going to be fine. Don't worry about it. They take the cast off after three months. And it feels... And, I mean, taking a cast off isn't supposed to hurt. It, it's uncomfortable, you know, but it's not supposed to hurt. It hurt when they were taking the cast off. This very intense sort of burning pain. And then they had to take the stitches out on my ankle. And the nurse tells me to lie down on the on the on the bed and she's like this will take two minutes no problem and she comes and she takes the tweezers and she goes to start peeling out the first stitch and she touches and starts to pull and it feels like someone's taking a a a, a flaming needle and jabbing it jabbing it into my ankle and i immediately saw black almost passed out and everything that i had eaten for lunch just came out all over the floor and the doctor jumps up and, what's going on what's going on what's going on and I'm like, it, it burns, it burns, it burns so bad. And she's like, they're like, hold on, hold on, we'll get it. And they literally had to like sort of hold me down. And the nurse is sitting there going, tuck, 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 and she's like pulling on these things. And I feel like someone's jabbing me over and over again with this 
burning needle. Like something's stabbing into my ankle. Um, at the end of the 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 whole thing, she goes, "What what happened?" And I was like, "I don't know. It just it burns, and it hurt to like put my foot on the ground. It hurt to just rest my foot on the ground. I, it, I, my foot didn't want to stay on the ground. It kept jumping up." And the doctor looked at me and he's like, "Look, physical therapy, physical therapy. Everything's going to be fine." Start doing physical therapy, um, five days a week, really, really intense. Hydrotherapy, physical therapy, occupational therapy, everything you can think of. Um, What did the uh, physical therapy entail on that point? So at that point, it was a Because you're describing as like you're almost incapable of putting your foot on the ground. So what were they working with you that you were able to do? So it started out at at the beginning, the doctors and the the physical therapists were very insistent that I try and do weight-bearing. It was the very first thing. They were like, let's get back to weight bearing. Let's get back to you walking normally. Let's, you know, you're on crutches, but let's get back to using your foot on a regular basis. And nobody at that point thought nerve damage. Nobody mentioned nerve damage. There was no, no, if you like, if you go back to my medical documents, at no point does it say he has nerve damage. Um, It was simply this idea of rehabilitation. Let's rebuild the muscle. Let's rebuild your flexibility. That was a big part of it. They were very worried that after the surgery and after three months in a cast, that the ankle was going to be stuck and they wanted me to really start start moving it. So it was put weight on it, put weight on your toes to, you know, get your ankle, um, get your ankle flexibility up again. Um, doing a lot of t- uh, toe he- uh, to- uh, heel toe work, sorry, heel to toe work, where it was like, put your foot down and, and really roll the foot. And every time I had to do it, my foot, I was literally fighting my leg from wanting, like my leg wanted to jump off the ground. And I had to fight that feeling in order to do what they were asking. And I was determined to do what they were asking. So I, I fought it. Um, three months later, I see the doctor and there's zero progress. In fact, there's there's regression, if anything. Um, my foot is was swollen. It was purple um it had this like crusty sort of thing on it because i couldn't wash it without feeling intense intense burning every time my water would go over it every time i would try and scrub scrub it my my leg i i would come close to passing out from my own touch um it hurt to put socks on it hurt like i was in so much pain you must have been freaking out to uh, to an extent at that point um freaking out yeah um it was more than that like there was I mean, if we want to really get into it, uh, at some point, because I was back in my room on my own on kibbutz, at some point I had um, I had decided I, I needed to use the bathroom, so I, I didn't want to use the crutches that I had because I hadn't yet gotten good pair. It was like these old, richety, not-so-comfortable crutches. So I was like, okay, I'll just jump on my left leg to, to the bathroom. I jumped to the bathroom, used the bathroom, and I guess my foot got, my left foot got wet or something. So I start jumping back the other way, and my foot slipped out from underneath me, my right foot like tapped on the ground and I found myself flat on my back looking at the ceiling, crying my eyes out. And it was a real question of like, why should I continue? Like, what's the purpose here? Why am I doing this? And it, it was like, I've, I mean, I've said it before in, in talks that I give. I came like this close to being like, why would I continue my life with this? Because this is that bad. Um, and I have friends who've had this, who've made that choice. And it's like, that's an intense thing to say, but like, I have friends who've ended their life because they had CRPS and couldn't, couldn't live with the pain. Um, 
And to tell you why I was able to pull myself onto my bed, cry for the next I don't know how long, and then get up and continue on, I, I can't give you a definitive here's why that happened. Um, Do you remember deciding? It was very much a decision. That I can tell you. It was very much a, I'm not giving up. I'm not giving up. No way. Uh, I'm not that kind of person. I'm, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not a quitter. I'm not giving up. No chance. Um, and it was a lot of self-talk. It was like, even then, like, I can remember having this almost long debate with myself about why it's important for me to continue. And some of it was kind of interesting because I had a couple of friends who were coming to visit me in like over time. And I had the kibbutz family who would come and knock on my door and check in on me every once in a while. So there was, there were people who were checking in on me. So that was part of it. And that was part of the reason I, was, I didn't want anyone had to find me <laughs> like that. Um, but part of it was also just this internal thing of like, I may be a diehard, but I don't want to die without purpose. Like, no, that's not who I am. It's not what I would want. I would rather push through this and I'm going to make the best of this situation, which sucks. Um, and it was really hard. Um, it was a lot of work with psychologists. Um, um, I think a lot of it was about acceptance. Um, back then it wasn't even that because I was doing therapy five days a week, like I said, in hydrotherapy. And you still had, so going through all this therapy, you still had hope that you'll, you'll get better uh -huh, 100%. And, you'll, and you'll run as the doctor promised you in a 100%. few months. Um, what did the hydrotherapy, what, what is, if you mind describing what hydrotherapy is? Sure. So hydrotherapy is in this case, it's work in a warm pool. Um, so that the weight bearing would be less. It was also about being able to get my leg used to the idea of being in water. I had been a swimmer in high school um, and I love the water. Even today, I still do hydrotherapy. Um, it's one of the most um, painful and also one of the most natural environments for me to be in. Um, the, the nature of it was in the deeper water, it would be about moving my legs so that muscle deterioration would be lessened. It was about keeping the water flowing over my legs so that that even though it was painful, um, just trying to get the body used to having that feeling and not, not destroying my jaw and screaming out loud every time I did it. Um, a lot of it was, um, a lot of it was very active movement of the leg is when it was one leg, very active movement of the leg. Um, in terms of within the water, okay, let's take, you know, one of those noodles and we're going to try and put it under your toes, try and push it down. Just try and push it down a little bit. Just try and push it down a little bit. Just, just try and get used to that idea that like, we're going to, it's going to actively engage the different muscles, you know, the muscles of the shin, the muscles of the, of the calf, get the tendon, you know, get the Achilles heel to, to really start stretching out a little bit, moving your toes and stretching your toes out onto the noodle. Um, it was super painful and I would come home and cry and I would need to recover for hours afterwards. But the whole purpose was I'm going to get up and walk. I'm going to get up and run. I have purpose behind this pain. There's no, not no purpose behind the pain that I'm suffering. Um, eventually I came to the realization that there doesn't have to be a purpose behind the pain. It just is. Um, and that realization was this just is and it's, there doesn't have to be a purpose behind it was a huge epiphany for me because it meant that I didn't have to fight the pain as much 
Because up until that point, I was fighting the pain all the time. Um, so your focus switched to accepting the pain rather than trying to get rid of the pain. Right. Um, at some point, um, so I'll get back to the story and I think it'll help clarify when that happened. Um, after about three and a half months, I saw the doctor who'd done the surgery and he looked at me and was like, something's wrong. I think you have nerve damage. I want to send you to a specialist. Um, he sent me to a specialist, took me two months to see the specialist just because of the nature of, you know, getting a, yep. an appointment and whatever. See the specialist and he, he goes, lie down on the bed. I lie down on the bed. He says, close your eyes. And um, all of a sudden I felt like someone was taking a blowtorch and was burning the side of my foot. And my eyes flew open and I look at him and he's holding a ball of cotton in his hand and he's gently tickling the side of my foot. And um, he saw my eyes fly open. Oh, he saw my eyes fly open and uh, he was like, okay, stop. Listen. There are three major issues. First things first, you have something called, and at the time it was called reflex sympathetic dystrophy. It's since then the names have changed. You have RSD, CRPS. Um, this pain that you have, it's uh, on the McGill pain scale. It's the worst known chronic pain disorder to modern medicine. We don't know anything more painful. I was like, okay, what does that mean? Um, and he showed me the pain, like he gave me some literature because he understood that I was you know, really into, into understanding the research, even though I wasn't, I wasn't a doctor then. I was, I hadn't even started my degree. Um, and like, it's more painful than, than childbirth without, without an epidural. Like it's super painful and it's all the time. And he goes, okay, you have this. I was like, okay, so fine. What does that mean? He goes, well, you're we don't know how to s solve it. We, we don't have a medicine that will make this better. All we can do is try and mitigate it and maybe reverse it through therapy, which is really when I started that more intense level of therapy where I was going in, you know, five days a week or three days a week to um, the CRPS clinic and I was doing hydrotherapy and it got even more intense where there was a real purpose behind everything we did. Um, we did, you know, touch therapy. They would take different kinds of cloth and try and rub it on my foot to just try and get my my foot used to the feeling of having something rubbing against it. And I would be screaming the whole time. I would come out of it hoarse and exhausted. Um, and then he looks at me and he goes, there's a couple other things you need to know. On, um, You know, it's the worst pain. It's, it's we don't have medicine. It, it, it can spread. At which point my mind went, what? Excuse me? Um, it's not enough. It's going to stay in my foot. And um, actually really quickly, it started to spread. It started to spread from my foot up to my middle middle of my shin. It sort of got stuck there for a few years. Um, during that time, I was doing really intense therapy and the doctor was really not happy with what was going on because I was driving from Kibbutz Saad in a cab to Tel Aviv where the therapy was. It's a long drive, yeah. It was an hour and a half drive. And he was like, your drive is actually taking everything that we do and destroying it because you're driving back. You're already tired. You're already wiped out. So he wanted me to move to the Tel Aviv area. And I was like, what am I going to do here? You know, I don't know. And he's like, David, why don't you start studying? So I moved to the area. I started studying. And once I started studying and I was doing therapy, things changed a little bit. A, because I had movement in my life. 
I wasn't stuck in, I'm just going to be dealing with this thing. It was, I'm going to be dealing with this thing, but I'm also trying, I'm also moving somewhere in my life. I, I'm working towards something else. And it gave me a way to distract myself. One of the things that um, I was very lucky to have is roommates who were very understanding. Um, I, I rented out two of the rooms in the apartment that we, it was a four room apartment. I rented out two of them. My office had a sign on it. On one side, it said, you know, knock, see if I see if you can come in. The other side said, don't touch the door. There's a, there's a homicidal hobbit inside. Um, and people knew that if one side, if the sign was out with the homicidal side, it meant I was dealing, I was just dealing with pain and I needed that closed space to sort of let it all out without taking it out on the world around me. Um, so, and I was very lucky that I had roommates who were so understanding. And did the pain fluctuate at the time? Was it worse at certain times than others? Oh yeah, hundred percent. Um, Even now, I mean, weather and stuff can make it worse. Um, it's always there. It's just a question of how how bad is it at any given point in time, and what's causing what what are the major triggers that are going on at the moment. Um, but like even right now, my pants hurt. I'm wearing booties. They they hurt. The the plate that my feet are resting on, my feet are like not wanting to stay on it. So like I'm I'm slowly like not putting them down i'm sort of holding them in the air so that they're not being touching i have a shield in order to protect my legs from people accidentally touching me um um on my yeah it's it's intense for the people also that cannot see it's uh, literally a shield that covers your it covers, knees thighs legs yeah, all from, over yeah from my yeah. knees down on my wheelchair it's something that was made special for me uh by elbit through an organization called restart um and it's it was made for me to protect my legs so that You know, I can go out into the rain or out with people who don't know me and who might accidentally go, hey, David, it's, you know, how you doing? Smack me on the leg, which happened before I had this thing. And it would cause extreme pain. And I, I, I would have to go home right away. Um, and this gives me that little bit of protection. Yeah. Protection. So you're, it's, I'm taking you back now to mm. um, the CRPS therapy. So you move to the, the closer to the clinic. Mm. Um, you're going in three to five times a week for mm -hmm. intense therapy. What, what does CRPS therapy entail of? Um, Cause they're telling you that they don't have a, a medication, a solution per mm -hmm. se. Uh, so what is the game plan at that point? So I think it's changed a lot over time, but back then, which we're talking yeah. 20 years ago right now. Yeah, I mean, so early 2000s. It was, yeah, 2000, 2002, 2003. Um, back then, it was a lot of touch therapy. It was a lot of movement therapy where it was um, just lying on my back and, you know, put your feet in the air and wiggle your, wiggle your toes, wiggle your, wiggle your ankle. We did mirroring therapy where, you know, they would have my leg behind a mirror and I'd have only, I'd only be able to see my left foot and the mirror image of it. And they would say, move your left foot, move your left foot. And the idea that it was somehow going to retrain my brain to think that what I was seeing was my right foot moving and healthy and everything was okay. Um, so yeah. it was an attempt to like trick the brain as it were. So, but with the hope that it can fix itself? Yeah. So the whole idea was, can we, can we, can we reverse the process? Can we somehow make this stop? And before it gets so bad that it's just irreversible. And it, even now, even now there are people out there who go, it's not irreversible. It's, you know, your brain is neuro, you know, like we talked about neuroplasticity before. Neuroplasticity doesn't disappear when we get older. It's just harder yeah. to do. So you could still retrain the brain and, and, Right. So what's interesting is that CRPS starts in, in a limb, but then it 
at some point that the function that's causing the pain is no longer in the limb. It's, it's in the central nervous system. It's in the brain. Um, and what happens is, is that the brain then takes over and is sending the wrong message down back to the limb saying, ow, 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 ow. It's not that there's something actually necessarily wrong with limb. In my case, there's a really good likelihood that some of my nerves got damaged from the excessive use on a busted ankle and the swelling and everything else and the surgery together probably damaged some of those nerves. But they don't. They didn't know at the time to tell you that something specific happened at surgery that maybe caused nerve damage. Right. They couldn't say it was the surgery. They couldn't say it was the 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 you know ankle sprains and the continued use of my leg. It was this plus that together. But I was already feeling pain when I was in the army. Yeah. So there's there's a pretty good chance that it's so you're going to it for intense therapy almost on a daily basis. Mm. Um, you feel it spreading to the middle part of your shin, mm-hmm. um, and then wh- what, what happens? happens after that? Okay, so it's, and at this point, your your left leg is absolutely fine. It's fine. My left leg is perfectly fine. I'm on crutches most of the time. Um, I have a uh, it's, it's, in in order to relieve any touch or stress on that right leg yeah i was in my house i had a walker and what i would do is it was one of those walkers that has a a a seat part to it and was on wheels and i would use that in my house i would put my knee on the walker and i would use it to roll around my house as my way of like being able to be functional so i would cook so i would stand when i was cooking on my left leg and i'd have my right knee resting on the walker and my foot would sort of be dangling off out into space so that nothing was touching it i didn't wear a sock i didn't wear a shoe i would only put socks and sh- socks on when i was going out of my house um and i i couldn't put a shoe on a shoe was too painful. The The pressure of the shoe, was just, it was too much. My body couldn't handle it. But I would put socks on, really warm socks. Um, and I would at the time, I would actually put on a sandal so that if I needed to rest my foot on the ground, I would do that. But it was, it was always a fight to rest my foot on the ground. It was something I had to actively do as opposed to, you know, that passive sort of, hey, you're standing, so just put your foot on the ground. Yeah. I had to actively tell myself, put your foot on the ground and leave it there. Um and then um, uh, I started dating and I met my future wife. And very soon after we got married, um, which was in 2006, um, it started to spread up to my knee. Um, and I, there was no, nothing that could have said, hey, this is going to happen. It was just I woke up one day and it's, it was burning more. And all of a sudden I started feeling pains and like, my, my upper shin, and then all of a sudden, it was like, couldn't touch that area. It was too painful. It was too much. Um, and it, it got up to the knee, and I, it was in 2008, I think. By 2008, I was already like, even when I tried to use the walker in our house, mm, it wasn't so easy. I could do it, but it wasn't easy. Um, and even then, I wasn't doing as much therapy, because at that point, doctors were looking at me and going... There's not much we can do, you know, come in a few times a week, come in, you know, once every few months for a checkup, but there's not much we can do in terms of therapy anymore. Um, I was still in psychotherapy. Uh, It was important. Um, But I wasn't, there was no real hope at that point of anything. With the psychotherapy, was there the hope that the psychotherapy could actually help your condition or was the psychotherapy about dealing with your current situation? It was about dealing with the current situation. There was, I don't think there was any, any thought that, you know, seeing psychologists or psychiatrists or anything like that was going to somehow 
alleviate the pain. I think he was more about finding mechanisms and means to to accept and cope with the pain. It was more coping mechanisms than anything else. Um, and it was just, a, it was a lot of talk therapy. We did try hypnosis. Um, I mean, I did all kinds of experiments. I did, I they tried me for a ketamine test to see if I could do a ketamine coma. Um, and that freaked me out because I did, the, I read about it and they were like, yeah, like 50% of the people don't even wake up from this. And I was like, I do not think this is a good idea. Um, but it wouldn't, wouldn't have mattered because when they did the ketamine test on me, it wasn't working. So it doesn't matter. Like it, they would have, it wouldn't have functionally been like wouldn't have worked. So, okay. So there's no point. Yeah. And with these experimental, um, therapies or maybe some other alternative therapies that you tried mm -hmm. were you doing this pretty early on now so we're talking like a couple years after the yeah, development I of mean, this okay so i did i don't think i've ever given up on the idea of doing therapy it's just a question of what kinds of therapy i'm doing i still do hydrotherapy yeah i still do hydrotherapy once a week now it's more for my soul than for my legs um but we do you know we do therapy um so what happened was in terms of therapies, um, the nature of the therapies changed over time from, from we're going to make this better to how do we make sure this doesn't get worse? Or how do we make sure that the parts of your body that you can move don't, don't get negatively impacted by whatever's going wrong with you? Um, and you're noticing and getting worse because it is slowly spreading. Right. So slowly I'm seeing it spread. And the the issue with that is well there's you know muscle deterioration my skin gets is like all my hair on my legs is gone um um my, my toenails i hate cutting my toenails cutting my toenails is torture um and we do it when my wife finally looks at my toenails and goes david i can't stand your toenails anymore cut them now <laughs> and i will and it's it's this huge event that we know will be i have to get ready for it emotionally then it's going to happen I clench my jaw. I have a, 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 a night guard, which I wear when I'm going to be doing something which I know will touch my legs because um, I clench. Um, put the night guard in, clench, 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 click, clip, 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 clip. And then I need like two hours of recuperation time just to be able to get back to functional after cutting my toenails. Um, so, and that sounds crazy. Like who needs two hours to get over Toenail cut. I do. Um, that's just the nature of it. Um, in 2009, 2010, um, I started feeling numbness in my left leg from the knee down. It was very weird and it was very uncomfortable. And it was happening when I was standing on my leg. And then middle of the night, I wake up and my whole body is drenched in sweat. And I literally thrown up in my sleep. And my wife jumped up screaming, what's going on? What's going on? And she tried to pull the blanket off. And I would sleep with my right foot out of the bed and my left foot under the cover. And as she was pulling the blanket off my left foot, um, I was I was screaming. And um, pull it off. And my left foot basically looks like a defeated, deflated balloon. But like sort of full, still sort of full of air. Puffy, purple, yellow. It was gross. We have pictures of it. It was disgusting. Just happened overnight. Happened overnight. And it was my left foot. And from there, it jumped it like very quickly from my left foot whoop, up to my left knee. It took about six months and it stopped. It was stuck there. 
Um, even now, I sort of feel like a little bit of tingly above the knees. And every time it happens, I like start rubbing my legs on the thighs to like be like, nope, nope, this is not happening. You are not moving above these knees. Not a chance. Um, but it's 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 more of that self-talk of like, I'm not going to let this happen to, to the extent that I can. Um, so 2010, now we're talking, what, 13 years later. Um, so I immediately found myself in a wheelchair. Uh, which was a whole different ballgame. Um, and in a wheelchair, first of all, the world was not the most handicapped accessible place when I started this process. I, I was one of the first people at my university to start trying to make it handicapped accessible back in 2002. In 2010, I had to relearn what that meant because I suddenly found myself in a chair all the time. And being in a chair is a whole different experience because now it's, hey, I want to go from here to there well, how bumpy is the road between here and there because the bumps hurt and cause extreme pain? How how many bricks am I going to have to go over in order to get from here? Is there a ramp to get up onto the sidewalk? Every place I go, I mean, even coming here, one of the things, you know, one of the things I asked was, hey, is this place handicapped accessible? Because yeah. I can't make that guarantee that wherever I'm going is going to be like that. Um, is it, is, I mean... You know, how um, how do you deal with it when a place isn't or something is just not physically accessible to you? I can only imagine the frustration, but how do you deal with it? Have you accepted it? I, I think I've pretty much accepted it at this point. Um, most of it's kind of on the level of I don't tend to go places like that. And if I do have to go someplace like that, I'll do the best that I can with what I got. Um I mean, because I've been doing this for 20 years, I, I, the public sphere has changed tremendously in that time period. It went from being almost completely inaccessible to being pretty accessible in most I was, places. I was in uh, Georgia, the country, mm -hmm. a few weeks ago, Tbilisi, Georgia, um, and they have all these underground tunnels. Um, so that there aren't that many crosswalks mm -hmm. to cross because the, the roads there in the city are pretty wide. Mm -hmm. um, so they have these underground tunnels um, and they were... I think 100% of the ones that I saw were handicap accessible. Um, so I was, I remember walking through those tunnels and ser seriously impressed. Um, and it's, it's definitely noticeable um, that nowadays things are more accessible. And to help you get to where you need to get right. um, and not get that frustration or not feel excluded in any way. So also thank you for drinking because I, um, one of the things I forgot to tell you before the podcast, one was uh, my rule is phones off. Number two is don't forget to drink. Okay. Because I, re I realize how uh, we're always constantly talking. Yeah, so. no, I'm, I'm glad I did that. Uh, yeah. And as a, as a lecturer, it's one of my, one of my, fatal flaws is that when I get going as a professor, I could go and go and go and not drink. And so my there was a time where my students actually got, I actually asked my students, hey guys, make sure I drink in the middle. <laughs> like, Remind Dr. me. Dr. Leitner, <laughs> take a moment. You need to drink. Um, and then I got, it set, It helped me pattern into starting to drink. So it was, it was good. But yeah, I agree. Um, so I'm going to agree with you. I think that um, the public sphere has become much more, much more handicapped accessible. Um, I would say that the next major obstacle that we have isn't the public sphere at all. It's your private sphere. It's, hey, a friend wants to invite you over and their house isn't acceptable, isn't accessible. It's, it's that someone's throwing a birthday party for a friend of yours and you can't go because the place doesn't, you know, it's got steps. 
and or there's no handicapped accessible bathroom. Um, I would love to see that be the next major change in our society is that any new house that's getting built, any new apartment that's getting built has to, by definition, have an accessibility plan to it, if not already be accessible. Just as functional, like just, just like you would ask in the public sphere that people do this, in your private sphere, it would be nice for our culture to move towards a state of actual accessibility and inclusion everywhere. Um, I have friends who have changed their houses to include ramps because they want me around. Um, I have friends who've realized that as they get older, they're going to need that ability anyway. So let's, you know, when we're buying this house or, you know, whatever, let's make sure it's accessible. Have you found a community of um, of individuals with CRPS that you can consult with, speak to, learn from? So I was part of a, um, a support group for quite a few years. Um, one of the things about the support groups, though, that I've been part of, it's it's more of a complaining group than a support group. And that wasn't what I was looking for. Um, I was able to support, and I have supported, um, young people who have CRPS or have suddenly found themselves facing this to let them know that there is life after, after and that it's possible to live life with, with and have children and be completely anxiety ridden that your children are going to cause you extreme pain. And they will. Um, it's one of the major things. Yeah. Yesterday, my daughter was my daughter who is eight years old and she is, you know, a wonderful young lady was having a normal eight year old tantrum. And she was, you know, flopping her sleeves around and she went right by me without thinking about it, you know, flopping her sleeves. And one of the sleeves grazed my leg and just that graze and my body flew into into spasms of pain. And I started hacking and I almost threw up and I I was like couldn't breathe. And I can't imagine what she felt from having to to see that and experience it but they've seen it and experienced it it's not something new to her she's seen it and experienced it before and she was the cause Um, but at the same time I'm experiencing this and I do this I've chosen to have children I've chosen to have a life I've chosen to continue on my life even though or with this and that's a choice Um, not just the idea of like hey it's a choice live not live but it's also a choice what kind of life am I going to have? Does that not mean that I spend days in, in my in my house and don't go out? I spend days in my house and don't go out. I choose very actively where and when I'm going to use my energy. Because being in constant pain is a huge energy drain in and of itself. Going back to the idea of D&D for a second. Um, you know, most people, there's this concept called spoonies. I don't know if you've ever heard it. Have you ever heard the idea of spoonies? No. Okay, so... This is not D&D, and then I'll go to D&D. Um, someone came up with an idea of spoons as a metaphor for how much energy you have when you're in pain, how much energy you have to deal with your day. And think about it. You go to the drawer, and you start with X amount of spoons, 10 spoons in your drawer at the beginning of the day, and you get dressed. That costs you a spoon. You you know, go and do something that costs you two spoons. It costs you three spoons. I don't like that metaphor for a lot of reasons because afterwards you have to wash your spoons. Who has energy to do that after you've already wasted all your energy? Or used all your energy. Um, but in D&D, there's a concept called hit points and exhaustion points. Um, and it goes like this. You know, hit points is how healthy am I? So you, when you wake up in the morning after a nice, long, good rest, probably full hit points. Okay. 
I, after a long rest, am lucky to wake up with 90% of my hit points, 85% of my hit points back. Um, just because the rest wasn't as restful as it needed to be. I wake up in the middle because of a pain. Yeah. Um, just, you know, I moved wrong and all of a sudden my leg got a little brush on it that I and I'm, I'm up. Um, then I have to get dressed. Well, that involves taking off my pajamas. And that's a hit point. And it involves putting on clothing. Well, that's a hit point. Um, and if I have to use the bathroom, that's a transfer. So that's, a, you know, a couple of hit points along the way. And, and then I have to transfer back from the toilet after I've used it. So that's another coat. Things like... Like for you, it's like a, you've used like a quarter of a hit point on all of that. And I've used six, seven just to start my day. Um, and as we get into hit points, we get we get become exhausted. And the more we live in that realm of having not getting back to full hit points, we become more and more tired. And the more tired we are, the less effective we are at doing what it is we need to be doing. In D&D, you start rolling badly on, on your response roles, and then you start rolling back badly on your active roles, on the things you want to be doing. It's the same thing in real life. Like, when I'm exhausted, when I'm tired because I'm in so much pain and I don't, and I'm, and I'm dealing with that, that lack of energy that's, that's happening because of these hit points, this loss of hit points, I'm not going to be as effective in my responses. I'm more likely to be angry. I'm more likely to respond badly. I'm more likely to to um, misinterpret the situation. Do you feel like you have become a lot stronger, though, in terms of um, managing these hit points? So maybe um, the th certain things you described to start your day maybe would have um, completely depleted you 15 years ago, but today it doesn't deplete you as much. 100%. I think that it's also a function of I'm very choosy about how I use my hit points and when I'm willing to go into exhaustion points. It yeah. has, I have to have purpose behind what I do. Um, for instance, I, I normally don't get, because I don't have a nine to five um, and I don't need to be out the door early in the morning, um, I normally help with the kids to try and get them out. And I know I'm getting hit points. I'm going to take hit points for that. I'm sure a lot of hit points. A whole bunch. But it's like, help make them their tensies so that they have their snack for the day. And, you know, make sure they get a hug before they walk out the, out the door. Those hit points, totally worth it. I am doing something which is beyond self. It's not about me using them on myself. And after they're gone, I will take a little while before I actually get out of my pajamas and into clothing. Like, I'll give myself a half hour, 45 minutes of recuperation time just to get over those few hit points that got taken out on me doing that stuff for family so that I can then start doing for self. Then I'll start doing for self and that'll be, okay, here is going to cost me some hit points to, to do this. Do you take anything for pain? I do not take anything at this point in my life. Zero things. Not have, have you? Tried? I have taken everything out of the face of the planet. And what things did not help so things there were things that helped a little bit and put me on cloud nine and i like a bad kind of cloud nine like that fuzzy kind of hey uh, i'm not responding as quickly i'm 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 i'm, I'm not, You're not present not present I'm, I'm not really there i hated that when i was in school um they had me they had me try oxycontin for a little while in school and i hated it for instance it it made me feel horrible did it help with the pain? A little bit. It, it, it works, huh? A little bit. I, but I hated the feeling. Yeah. It, I didn't like it. It made me feel not not good. Yeah. And I couldn't I couldn't do that. It wasn't worth it, given the amount of pain relief it was giving. It yeah. just wasn't enough. 
Um, and I think it was like, but was was sorry. I think it was like three weeks or a month into it. I was like, I'm done. I can't continue doing this. But during that month, were you? Was it a dilemma? Because if it's you know you found something no. that's helping your pain. No, it wasn't helping enough to make it worthwhile. It wasn't at all. It was. It was what it was like. If we're putting it in percentage wise, like percentage wise, ten, fifteen percent of the pain decreased. Decreased. Okay. It just wasn't worth it. it. If I was taking something, it had to really make it worthwhile for me to be in a state of, of cognitive de- depression, cognitive, cognitive. Yeah. Uh, I don't even know where the, where the word, yeah, where not, word is. Yeah. Not a hundred percent there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, so, but was that the 15% depletion of pain? Was that the most effective medication that you tried? Um, or was there anything that was more extreme and beneficial? Speaking about the pain alone, forget about being present. Um, there were other things that I tried that were, were more effective. Um, some of them were things that, like, when I took them, it would be okay if I if if I kept up taking them on a regular basis. It wouldn't. It would. There'd be like a very short period of some kind of uh, cognitive impact, and then it would just sort of, sort of, like, um, level out, and was fine as long as I was taking on a regular basis. But then if I stopped at any point and came back to it, it wasn't. It wasn't as effective as I w- as it was before, or, or it wasn't as worthwhile. Um, some of the things that I was taking would be very effective, but for a very very short period of time, like it would help for half an hour, an hour, and then what? And you couldn't take again for for six hours. So it was almost like um, <laughs> it was a tease. Yeah, teasing. You. It was a tease, and it was a horrible tease because what happened is is the rebound effect of the pain was sometimes worse than what the pain had been beforehand because you have this sense of like, oh, there's less pain, there's less pain, and there's like, oh, oh my God, there's lots of pain. Oh, wow. Oh, burning, 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 burning. Ah. And just dealing with it was just so intense and it wasn't worth it. Um, Did you go to any, um, you know, uh, Eastern medicine healers, um, any other alternative treatments that you would never even think about trying, but you tried? So I've tried um, in terms of different spectrums of alternative medication, if we want to call it that, or, or, yeah, I guess alternatives. Therapies. Therapies. Yeah. I, don't, yeah. I don't like the term alternative in general. I, like, I find that to be yeah. a little bit offensive to these people who have been doing this for thousands of years. <laughs> you know, oriental medica- medicine has been around longer than yeah. Western medicine has. Yeah. It's not so alternative. I guess alternative to what we're preached as conventional. Right. Well, it's, yeah. not, it's, not, it's, not, it's not Western medicine. Okay, fine. But I, I find it really interesting. Like, I've tried everything from, you know, um, acupuncture and acupressure and energy healing and herbal healing and, I'm interested and lymph, w- lymph node, this, that, and the other thing and massage therapy. Like, yeah, I've, I give me the spectrum. I could probably say yes to it. I'm interested, though, on the maybe the Chinese medicines take on what you're suffering from. Do they say, hey, it's CRPS as well? Um, they don't use that term. <laughs> um, I don't think that that's um, depending on who we're talking about. It'll be like there are chakras that are blocked. Um, they'll talk about things like um, different different paths um, not functioning well or needing to activate certain path certain pathways. Um whether it's through acupressure, acupuncture, um, there was a lot of attempts to do that, to either deplete certain messages that were being sent on certain pathways or, or increase um, 
certain energy energy baths. Yeah. Um, and and there was a lot of it. I mean, it, it, needling my leg was legs was very very difficult because even the needles, which are these super thin, like not supposed to hurt, hurt a lot. They hurt a lot, and to have them stay in, and people are like, oh, once they're in, you don't feel them. I feel them, and it can like it's a big deal. So, what, so was there any progress from undergoing these treatments? No, 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 nothing. Um, the things that temporary relief, maybe not so much. The thing that I did get from it actually was interesting. Um, one of one of my therapists, she would um, she would acupuncture. She would actually bleed my my earlobe, my the top of my ear, um, and when she would pop it, it would like gush blood for a good you know, three, four minutes. Um, and when she did that, it didn't relieve the pain, but it relieved some of the pressure that I was dealing with in the, in the, in my legs. And it was very interesting when she would do it. Um, cause she would come in and say, you know, what are, where are we at today in terms of pressure and in terms of your legs? And I'd be like, it's really bad. And she would start like rubbing the top of my, my ear and she could feel like a buildup of, of blood and she would she would take one of her needles and pop it and like the moment she pulled the needle out there was just this release and I could feel it and I would feel it like body wide it wasn't just in my in my ears that I was feeling the release um um where do you stand now in terms of therapy I'm not doing any, I mean, besides hydrotherapy right now and occasional massage therapies, because using a wheelchair is extremely, extremely hard on the upper body. Um, I'm not doing anything in particular to try and heal my what body. Is, what does the massage therapy entail? Massage therapy is mostly for like lower back pain, shoulder, my upper body though. You focus. Yeah. 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 It, I, at some point, I think it was in 2012. I saw a doctor and I had been going from doctor to doctor asking if they could take off my legs. Like I had gotten to the point where I was like, maybe we should just take them off. And none of the doctors were willing to, to take off my legs. They were like, it's spread from one leg to the other. And it may still be spreading on you. If we cut and hurt the nerves again, we can't guarantee that it's not going to spread more quicker. We're not doing this. Um, and I actually got really frustrated because it was something I was really, really considering at the time. Um, and then one of the doctors who I saw, he looked at me and goes, David, you just have to give up on the legs and accept that this is how it's going to be. And I was like, excuse me? He said, listen, it's really very simple. If you don't give up on the legs and continue to fight, you're probably going to make this worse because you are trying to do, do something that will cause more damage. It would be better for you to simply say, I'm going to work to maintain my body function. And all of a sudden we did this switch in my therapy, in hydrotherapy specifically, it wasn't any more about trying to heal David. It was about how much can we keep David physically active? How much can we keep me and my butt muscles moving and my thigh muscles moving? So I'll get into the water and in, in the water, I'll do like bicycle in the water just to move my legs. Um, and what, what does David now think about that statement from the doctor then? I think that, Cognitively, it was a very important thing to do because it made it much more possible from it made it possible for me to live much more of my life without feeling like I was constantly fighting my legs. I'm still dealing with my legs all the time, but I'm not I'm not fighting them. 
Um, with that, um, at some point about six years ago, I came to the very real realization that I do want to push myself a little bit. And I do want to set specific goals for myself and objectives that involve some form of improvement, some form of fighting, but not the – see, how do I describe this? I find that fi- I find that a lot of therapy is about the immediate fight, right, the real fight. In the, but if you think about therapy as a long-term thing where I'm not going to set a goal for now and in six months from now I have to have hit that goal. But rather I'm going to set a goal for now and it's five years down the line. If five years from now. I'm going to try and make this minuscule improvement in my life. But it's going to take a huge amount of, of willpower to continually work towards those object, that objective and having little teeny tiny goals along the way. Um, and that's something I did. And actually I'm coming up now, like this week, on the date that I set for hitting one of those objectives. Um, and it's been a five-year process of Do you mind sharing the objective? Okay, so normally I would say no, but because it's literally like five days from now, I, I can share it. Um, and the reason is because when you share a goal, just as a side note, don't ever share your goals with people or your objectives um, because you get, um, you get it, when you share your goals, you get a dopamine hit and it means like, it makes you less likely to put in the time and energy to actually like go for your goal because you think you've already hit it. Your brain starts to feel like it's already hit it. So in general, the answer would be no. Because people will compliment you just for sharing the goal, not right. necessarily Not even that. Your own body gets the feeling of like what you were literally doing is telling your body, like because you've because you've vocalized it and you've put it out into the world, you are literally creating for your body the sense of, oh, I've moved forward on this. I've accomplished something. But you haven't. Like you haven't actually accomplished it. And it's a very dangerous thing to do. So don't ever share your goals. So sorry for making you it's, do this. It's good. No, it's good. Yeah. Um, so about five and a half, six years ago, I was I was in synagogue and a friend of mine had their kid had a bar mitzvah. And the father got up and he says this this line. And and I had never really paid attention because I I'd, like I I'd, I'd, my first son was born in 2010. Um, I never really paid attention to what happened at a bar mitzvah in terms of the dynamics. And um I asked about it and someone was like, oh yeah, the father's supposed to get up and say this line to the fa- to the son. And I was like, what do you mean get up? And he was like, well, according to the Rama, who's one of the people who writes about it, the, there's this whole thing. The father stands up and says, you know, this line. And I was like, hmm. And I, I sort of dwelled in that for a little bit and I started researching and I started looking into it and I started really, it was like something that I really wanted to learn about. Um, there's not a lot of literature on it, but there's enough for me to say, hey, I need to talk to a rabbi. I went and spoke to the rabbi. And I was like, look, technically, you're supposed to stand up. If you can stand up, you should. And I was like, okay, here's the goal. I presently am not physically capable of putting both feet on the ground and pushing my body upright and standing up for more than four seconds, five seconds, max. I am going to push myself from here. I have five years. I'm going to get to the point where I can say this full line standing without crutches at my son's bar mitzvah. And I was like, this is something I am going to do. And I went into my, to, to my hydrotherapist, to the head of the hydrotherapist, who is, uh, she, I mean, she no longer works there, but she is a godsend. And I said, listen, I'm going to share this with you. I'm not sharing this with anyone else. This is what I want to do. And she said, okay, let's build a, let's build a program from now until then. And it involved getting me crutches that I could use in the water to start working on weight bearing in the water. 
It involved a lot of stretching exercises in the water. It involved a lot of just relaxation in the water and finding a, a zone of of comfort where I could just sort of move, move your toes, move your ankles, move your legs, stretch. Um, and it was a very slow process. At the very beginning, I couldn't stand up on my legs with the crutches almost at all. Like it was a fight and it was a fight in the water. We're talking about, I'm not wearing, I'm not bearing all my weight. You're, you lose what 80% of your body weight or 60% of your body weight in the water. Um, and I did this, I was doing it at the beginning. I was doing it three days a week. Then we went down to twice a week. And, and for the last, I mean, then Corona happened. And then for the last year and a half, it's been once in a week, once a week that I've been doing it um, with a very clear purpose of um, I do once a week in, in water and once a week at home trying to stand up without crutches. Um, the water work is with crutches. And then at home, I have somebody who watches me and I, I try and stand up. And I have purpose here. And I believe that at this point in my life, I will be able to stand up, say this line to my kid, and I'm going to suffer tremendously for it. And I know this, and everybody, like, my family knows that afterwards, I mean, yes, I'll be at lunch, but the afternoon, we've already talked about the fact that I'm going to need to rest. Everybody knows, we all understood that was gonna, what's going to happen. There's going to be a, a huge price tag for for this. But I'm going to stand up at my kid's bar mitzvah and I'm going to say, you know, that line. And I'm going to do it because I set that goal for myself. Now, I, I hope that by sharing this, I didn't just mess it all up. <laughs> I don't think I did. I think that's a uh, great way to end uh, this episode. We've been here almost for a couple hours now. So, um, look, yeah, it was, you know, it's, uh, it's so intense um, and so disheartening in many ways to think about you know how everything started um, but now super inspirational really just listening to you um, and I think a lot of people out there have choices to make it might not be CRPS it might be it might be something else but everyone has choices to make and you obviously made yours so uh, congratulations for five days from now I thank hope, you I hope everything goes well um, and thank you very much for being here on the podcast thank you for having me it's been wonderful